Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Colossians 1, uh, that's where we are going to be today. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, we'll actually be in 1 and 2 uh, as we cover a little bit of ground in the book. Now, we've started this series called Seeks to Be, and we really have two goals for the series. Uh, The first goal is we want to remember who we are. We want to remember who we are as those who are followers of Jesus. We want to remember who we are as this church called Exodus Church. And then second, we want to prepare for where we are going. Last week, Nathan, man, just was such a blessing to hear him share God's word last week. And he talked about the, the joy and the hope and the missional eagerness that we all felt as we started this Exodus journey several years ago. And we want to kind of rekindle that so that we aren't a group of 30 trying to launch something, but we're this group that God has amassed of around 500 folks on a Sunday to launch into the next chapter we have as Exodus. And I remember March 1st, that was our first public gathering. We were in the Iris Room. Um, it was a monsoon rain, just crazy rain. Um, there was a ditch four feet wide, 20 feet long, and 10 feet deep right outside the, um, the door. So it was just the worst conditions imaginable for our first day. And yet people came. The gospel was preached. People connected here. And I remember going up to Darlene Mitchell at the end of that day and, and just we were talking and she said, Brian, I think they might come back. And I said, I, I hope so. I hope so. And many of you did. And it's been a just, man, just a blessing to see what God's doing. And so our hope is to remember who we are and to prepare for this next chapter. And when we talk about remembering who we are, we want to remember our mission statement. It's going to be on the screen. Exodus seeks to be a redeemed people who worship and serve God in the world. And from that, we get our four core values of gospel, community, worship, and mission. So this is both who we seek to be and who we've always sought to be. From the beginning, these core values have shaped everything about who we are. But it would be a mistake to think that we want to simply connect to an idea we had um, when we started. No, no, this, this vision statement connects back to everything the people of God have always sought to be. Even our name Exodus comes from the Exodus story where God's people are enslaved in Egypt and God comes in with a mighty hand and redeems them and frees them to be a people who worship and serve him in the world. And yet they did not worship and serve him rightly. In fact, they began serving other false gods and falling into sin but God would still have a redeemed people to worship and serve him. And so he sent Jesus to live, die, and rise again so that God would have a redeemed people who worship and serve him in the world. So when we talk about who we seek to be, this idea of being a redeemed people who worship and serve God in the world, we're talking about what the people of God were always meant to be. This is not new. We didn't come up with this 10 years ago. This is who the people of God have always been, a redeemed people who were to worship and serve God in the world. And that's what we seek to be as a church. Now, some of you, perhaps you don't consider yourself part of the people of God. Maybe you don't see the point. Life's just fine without God, or at least the little bit of God you think you need. Maybe you think, you have, I got just enough. I got just enough to be okay. Or maybe some of you don't see the possibility of you being part of the people of God. You've got this long list of all the things you've done and you know all of those things and you feel the weight 
of all those things. And you wonder, in light of all those things, could God really accept you into his family? My hope today is that we would see Jesus and his gospel and that we would see something so compelling about Jesus and his gospel that we would long to be part of his people and that we would remember as a redeemed people just how great it is that we belong to him. So I'm going to read uh, Colossians 1, 3 through 8, and then portions of chapter 2 that we'll be looking at today. Let's start in Colossians 1, 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now verse 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us, for your grace. I pray that you would captivate us today. I pray that our hearts would be just captured by the beauty of your gospel and that as as we leave this place, that we would rejoice in being a redeemed people and that we would live into the fullness of all that that means. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to open your word so that we can understand it, not just hear it, but understand it. Uh, We need you to open our hearts so that our hearts might receive uh, the, the good seed of your word and that our hearts might be fruitful and, and produce just good fruit in our lives from your gospel. So would you do that, Holy Spirit? Uh, we're incredibly incapable and helpless before you to do that. So we humbly ask that you would work in our hearts and in our lives today. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now, I love to think about the story of this church. This Colossians is a letter written by Paul to a struggling church plant in this tri-city, uh, in the textile town in a tri-cities area. Paul did not plant this church. In fact, there was a guy mentioned twice in the letter named Epaphras who heard the gospel from Paul, probably in Ephesus, and then he goes home to his hometown. He shares the gospel. He makes disciples, and a church is planted. So when you think about church, don't think building, don't think website, don't think gathering. Think a redeemed people who were to worship God and serve him in the, in the world. That's what a church is. And so he, a church was planted there, and then things start going sideways, and he has all kinds of trouble. There's a guy in the church who's raising himself up as a leader, and people are starting to follow him. And what this guy is basically doing is saying, Jesus is good, but if you really want to go next level, 
If you want to go varsity, then here's some things you got to check. You got to have, you got to follow these strict rules and do these strict things. And then not only was he telling them that, he was also kind of drawing them to himself. So this Epaphras is trying to point people to Jesus. This other guy is trying to point people to himself. And those kinds of people are all around churches today. Some of them are aggressively that way. And they'll, they'll aggressively step in, take charge, start being critical, and just trying to rally the troops against those who are in current leadership. Some of them are more passive. And so they'll just ask questions. Hey, I'm not, I don't want to cause trouble. I just want to ask a question. And they ask a question similar to what the evil one did in Genesis 3. Hey, did God really say? And so they cause all kind of trouble. Well, this guy's starting to get traction, and Epaphras doesn't know what to do. And so he goes to find Paul and says, Paul, I need help. And the reason we have the letter to the Colossians is because a church planter had the humility to ask for help. That's why we have this letter. And so Paul writes to this church, and his antidote for all of this, for this guy that's trying to exalt himself, for this idea of next-level Christianity where you check boxes and get better, that his antidote for all of that is the gospel. And he announces the gospel in three ways. He says that the gospel announces our deliverance, the gospel declares our forgiveness, and the gospel frees us for dependence. Now, Before we get to those three things, I want to just show you and show us that Paul pushes them to the gospel. Look at chapter one, verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, the gospel has come to them and it's had some evidence of uh, effect in their lives. That's why Paul says in verse three, uh, we, have, we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints, and the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the gospel that's come to them it has had some effect in their lives. And Paul connects this gospel not just to what's going on in that church, but what's going on all around the world. And he says this gospel is bearing fruit and growing around the whole world. And then he connects it back to this guy, Epaphras, who has just simply faithfully shared the gospel with them. Verse six, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Those are two ideas, heard it, and understood it. We can sometimes hear people without understanding them. We can hear the gospel without understanding it. And Paul's saying, you've done both. You've heard it and understood it. And why have they done that? Verse seven, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. That idea, learn, is connected to the root word disciple. So Epaphras has been discipling this church. And now this guy is kind of, rising up to supplant him. Now, Paul is pushing them to this gospel. The gospel, the, this news that has been announced, which is what gospel is. Gospel is the announcement of news. This gospel is what Paul is holding up 
as the answer to the problem of this guy trying to take over and this idea of next level Christianity. It's the gospel that he's holding up. And when we say gospel, we need to understand what one writer has said better than I'm able to. So I'm gonna quote him. He said this, the gospel is good news, not good advice. He goes on, advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it's up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. And then he kind of gives this word picture. Uh, He says this, let's say there's an invading army coming toward a town. What that town needs is military advisors. It needs advice. Someone should, should explain that the trenches should go over there, the marksmen should go up there, and tanks go over there. However, he says, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what that town needs is not military advisors. It needs messengers. And the messengers do not say, here's what you have to do. Rather, they say, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. In other words, stop fleeing, stop building fortifications, stop trying to save yourselves. The king has saved you. Something has been done and it changes everything. That's what Paul wants these people to understand, the gospel as news, not advice. And he unpacks that news in three ways. First, the gospel announces our deliverance. Look at chapter one, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the first announcement of the gospel, Paul reminds them and us that we were under the domain of darkness. If we're to be delivered, that means we're captive there. And not only are we captive in the domain of darkness, we like it. And in verse 21 of chapter one, he, re, he says this, and you who once were alienated, that means kind of distant, like relationally distant, and hostile in mind, that's more than relationally distant, that's aggressively angry, and then doing evil deeds. So not only are we relationally distant from God, we're hateful toward him and we're engaged in evil deeds, rebellion against him. So we're in the domain of darkness and there's a part of us that likes that. And the announcement of our deliverance in verse 13 is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The gospel announces our deliverance. So what the gospel is not saying is Jesus did not come giving advice about how to get out of the domain of darkness. He did not come making it possible for us to get out of the domain of darkness. He delivered us and transferred us. It's an announcement of news of what God has done. He delivered us. Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived, died, rose again, so that those who were alienated, hostile, and engaged in evil deeds might be delivered 
and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what the gospel announces. It announces our deliverance. And that word transferred, it's not, a, it's not a location word. It doesn't mean you went from this place to this place. It involves a complete change. Not only were we uh, delivered and transferred, but delivered, but we were transferred. Our hearts were changed to like this new realm. We're no longer alienated, hostile, and, evil, and engaged in evil deeds. We are now transferred to love the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is a staggering idea. Now, you can, you can substitute whatever team you like in what I'm about to say, okay? But can you imagine the most rabid Tar Heel fan you've ever experienced? And you've probably experienced some, okay? Now, imagine this guy who's just a rabid, whatever that little whole phrase is, thing they say, Tar Heel bread, Tar Heel dead, all that. So just rabid, Okay? And imagine that he has to go to Duke University. Okay? And then four weeks in, he's bleeding Duke, Duke Blue. Just all over Duke University, loving it. That is like a minuscule picture of what this is describing. We were in the domain of darkness. He delivered us, and then he changed us to love the kingdom of his beloved son. The gospel is not advice about how to get better. It's the announcement that we have been delivered. We've been delivered. We've been changed by the power and grace of Jesus. Second thing we see about the gospel is not only does the gospel announce our deliverance, it declares our forgiveness. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's, that's deliverance language. You were dead, now you've been made alive. You've you delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into a new kingdom. Same kind of idea. Keep going. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is an announcement declaring our forgiveness in the victory of Jesus. So all the ways, all the ways you were alienated from God, all the ways you were hostile to him, all the ways you were engaged in evil deeds, he's forgiven all of those things. And the gospel announces that over our lives. And the way he does that is in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, the only way verse 13 is a big deal to you is if you understand the record of your debt in sin to a holy God. Um couple times I've been pulled over for speeding. I don't know if that just totally messes up your world about me or not. You know, get in line if you have bad things to think about me, okay? But um, I went to the, somebody said, hey, if you go to this guy, he'll write on it and it'll be reduced. So I went to the guy that writes on it to be reduced. And I'm in a waiting room and I'm sitting next to a person and I look over and I said, so why are you here? And, and her response was, well, I shoplifted. And I looked around and I thought, I am a criminal. I am here with other criminals 
to talk to the guy who can write on my sheet of paper. Like this, and all of a sudden it got to a big deal. Like before it was like, man, I just sped, like everybody. Now I'm sitting next to a shoplifter, I'm a criminal. Until we understand, it's not just that I disobeyed a rule. Like I was alienated, I was hostile, I was engaged in evil deeds, I was in the domain of darkness and I liked it that way. Only then will we realize that him taking all of our sin away and forgiving it is a big deal. It's a big deal. And what he does, man, this is one of, if you've been around Exodus at all any time, you know that I love this verse because this is taken directly from a, a legal custom of the day where when you, if someone committed a crime, they would go to a judge and they would be given a certificate. And on that certificate, it would say what they did. Underneath it, it would say the penalty that they had to pay for that thing. And while the person was fulfilling their penalty, that certificate would be hung next to them. So if a person stole a loaf of bread and they're hanging in the stocks for two days, that's what would be next to them for all the world to see. And when they had fulfilled that uh, penalty for their crime, they would take that certificate back to a judge and he would stamp one Greek word on it. It would be the word tetelestai, which means paid in full and Christian. If you have trusted Christ, what this verse is saying is that when Jesus proclaimed from the cross, it is finished, that that was stamped across the certificate of debt of your life and he forgave you all your sin. And that's good news. And the gospel is not advice about how to make the good better than the bad. The gospel is not advice about how to check enough right things to undo the wrong things. The gospel is the announcement of news that forgiveness has been secured in Jesus Christ. And it's available to all who hope in him. And so the gospel is an announcement of our deliverance. It's a declaration of our forgiveness and then the gospel frees us to depend on him. It frees us for dependence. Now, so many people that I speak with have the idea that the gospel is Jesus died for me and the rest is up to me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus died for me and the rest is up to me. But that is what many of us understand about what it means to be a Christian. Jesus died for me, now I've got to do my best. And he's busy with everybody else and all these other things are going on and I've got to really do my best because he died for me and the rest is up to me. But the gospel is so much sweeter than that. And in chapter two, verses six and seven, Paul says this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, I would venture to say 99.9999% of us who received Jesus did not do so with our list of things he should be impressed by. Like we didn't come to Jesus and say, well, obviously you, you noticed the skills and so you chose me. Like we didn't do Will Smith and Men in Black. Like we didn't do that, Okay. We came to him and said, Jesus, you're my only hope. Like, my debt is too big. My will is too small. 
I got nothing if I don't have you. That's how we came to him. And this verse says that's how we walk with him. The gospel is not Jesus died for me and the rest is up to me. The gospel is Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is the only hope I have and Jesus is the only hope I need. That's the gospel. And the way I am saved when I bring all of my mess and all of my pain and all of my sin and all of my shame, I bring all of that to Jesus to be saved and that's the way I continue walking. Jesus, I need you. Every hour, I need you. There's not this day coming when I don't need Jesus. And the gospel frees us to depend on him. And this walking out with Jesus is so much sweeter than Jesus died for me and the rest is up to me. Like if that's what we're selling, man, we're in trouble. We're in, we're in deep trouble because on our best day, we don't have hope. But the gospel is not Jesus died for me and the rest is up to me. The gospel is Jesus died for me. He has declared, he has announced my deliverance. He has declared my forgiveness and he has freed me to depend on him. My hope is not me. My hope is him. And that gets into every part of my world. My relationships, my money, my marriage, my work, my job, my parenting, it gets into all of it. My hope is not me. My hope is him. So the gospel frees me to depend on the Lord. And so at Exodus, we seek to be a redeemed people. It's who we seek to be. It's who we've always sought to be. And it's who we will, Lord willing, by God's grace, go on seeking to be. And so this gospel is an announcement of news. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. Life with him is sweet. It's this announcement of news. And so what do you do with news? You respond. You respond. So how, do you, how will you, how will we respond today? Because the gospel news calls for a response. And there's really only two. There's only two. We can joyfully surrender or we can arrogantly reject. Now, arrogant rejection looks rebellious and religious. Now, it can look rebellious where you're just like, look, I don't care about God at all. And maybe that's you today. And here's what you need to know. You're in good company because all the rest of us were that way one time too. That's what the Bible says. In fact, the guy who wrote the letter of Colossians was the biggest rebel against Christ in the course of human history. He was actively killing Christians trying to snuff out this thing called the gospel. And Jesus appears to him, radically changes his life. And he becomes not just a follower of Jesus, but one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. See, God has a way of pursuing rebellious hearts and claiming, him, claiming them for his own. Because he loves rebellious people so much that he sent his son Jesus to live 
die and rise again so that rebellious people could be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so if you're just kind of arrogantly rejecting him and it looks kind of rebellious, our prayer is that God's going to be working on your heart and that he captures you. That's our heart. That's our prayer. But arrogant rejection can also look religious. And as a religious person, man, you care very much about God. It's not that you don't care. You care very much. You just don't believe what he says. Now, you would never say it that way. Man, are you kidding me? Of course I believe what he says. Well, you, you kind of, I mean, you're, but you think, you, you believe that it's up to you. And you've got to check the right boxes and do the right things and be the right person to earn what can only be given as gift. And when you try to earn what can only be given as gift, you're rejecting his grace. It can't be free. It can't be free. Well, it is. I've said this before. I was talking to a person one time and and his he, it just, he couldn't get past the freedom of grace. And he said, well, if there was just one thing I could do to earn this, I'd be great. I said, well, here's what you have to do. You have to humble yourself and admit you can't earn it. I can't do that. Bingo. It's a hard, like humbling yourself and receiving a gift is hard. Both Rebellious rejection and religious rejection are an arrogant rejection of God and his grace. And the gospel calls us not to an arrogant rejection, but to joyful surrender. To a joyful surrender that says, I can't, but he can. That says, I haven't, but he has. I won't, but he will. And it's this joyful surrender to this God who has declared his love for us, who has declared his deliverance of us, who has declared his forgiveness for us, who has declared you live dependent on me forever. It's a joyful surrender. So how will you respond to How will you respond? Will you reject this news or will you joyfully surrender to it? It's our hope here that we would be a redeemed people, a people who joyfully surrender to the goodness and greatness of our God, a people who joyfully surrender to the free gift of of his grace, who gladly admit, I got nothing. I got nothing. If I don't have him, I got nothing. And who gladly surrender to him. That's who we've sought to be. That's who we seek to be. And who, by God's grace, will go on seeking to be until Jesus comes back.